Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art. We come to you every Monday with a new story about what's going on in your world. Today's guest is the Honorable Franklin Garcia, the United States Shadow Representative for the District of Columbia. Yes, I said the word shadow. He's like our very own Latino superhero in our nation's capital fighting each day to get a statehood. You will get a quick history lesson and some knowledge about the need for equity in D.C. I want to thank all the folks following us at Jesse Garcia Show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. For more information about the show, visit jessegarciashow.com. To all my young Latino college students and soon-to-be grads looking for work, listen closely. Make plans to attend this year's collegiate symposiums hosted by the Association of Latino Professionals for America throughout the month of March. These free events are taking place in Anaheim, California on March 3rd, Miami, Florida on March 10th, San Antonio, Texas on March 24th, and Tacoma Park, Maryland near Washington, D.C. on March 31st. Top employers will be offering full-time jobs and internships to accounting, finance, business, and STEM majors. Plus, there will be professional development sessions to help prepare young Latinos for the real world. Register for these free events offered by the Association of Latino Professionals for America today on its website, www.alpfa.org backslash 2018 symposium. Last but not least, my mother Lupita from Brownsville, Texas, called this past weekend to remind us all not to eat meat this coming Valentine's Day. The holiday lands on Ash Wednesday, so don't hurt the baby Jesus. You've been warned. And here's your weekly news update. Newsweek reporter Chantal de Silva reported about the aftermath of the chaos that erupted in Philadelphia as Eagles fans toured through their streets celebrating their Super Bowl victory. Many could not help but notice the difference in how the public officials reacted to the riots by fans compared to those prompted by civil unrest. Quoted in Newsweek was the following, Somehow it seems there's a line drawn in the sand where destruction of property because of a sports victory is okay and acceptable in America. However, if you have people who are fighting for their most basic human right, the right to live, they will be condemned, said Black Lives Matter New York President Hawk Newsom. Newsweek reported that the emergency responders struggled to keep up with rioters as they marched through Philadelphia streets, leaving destruction in their path. But officials appeared slow to condemn the destruction caused by the rioters, offering seemingly gentle requests for everyone to go home. They actually said the following, still going strong in the Office of Emergency Management, but if everyone could go home, that would be great, said Philadelphia Police Sergeant Brian Gear, who tweeted that night of the victory, we have to get some rest to start planning a parade in the morning. Black Lives Matter called the lack of condemnation from officials a glaring example of white privilege. Quote, you can riot if you're white and your team wins, but if you're black and being killed, you can't speak out. (laughs) 
While the nation was captivated by the presidential election on November 8, 2016, Washington, D.C. voters had another important decision on the ballot. Do you want D.C. to become a state? More than 78% voted in favor of statehood. This referendum outcome joins a long list of surveys that show district residents want self-control. You see, D.C. is just afforded one non-voting delegate in the U.S. House of Representatives. That person is the Honorable Eleanor Holmes Norton, who solely represents the nation's capital and its 693,000 residents. She represents one of the fastest growing areas in the country, according to the Census Bureau, which said D.C. had a growth rate of 15%. To put our size in perspective, the District of Columbia has more people than the states of Wyoming and Vermont, states that have two U.S. Senators and one at-large U.S. Representative advocating for them on Capitol Hill. D.C. and its non-voting delegate counterparts from the territories of Puerto Rico, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and American Samoa are invited to sit next to Congress members on Capitol Hill, but have limited power. They can only participate in committees, debate on the House floor, and introduce bills. Now, unlike Puerto Rico, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and American Samoa, residents of the District of Columbia are subject to federal personal income taxes. Not to say that those territories don't pay some sort of federal tax, but D.C. residents, like all citizens who reside in the 50 states, have to file federal taxes every April. The IRS collected over $27 billion from district residents in 2016. That's more revenue collected than 18 other states in the union. Talk about taxation without representation. And get this current law allows D.C. to elect a mayor and city council members, but any city laws or annual budget has to be approved by the United States House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. Talk about federal government overreach. One man hoping to fix all of this is our shadow representative Franklin Garcia. No, he's not an actual mysterious hero from a comic book, but a political concept developed in the late 18th century America to get a future state's territory's foot in the door in Congress to start the ball rolling on statehood. Now let's talk to Franklin about his work to create the great state of New Columbia. Well, welcome to the show, Franklin Garcia, our shadow representative. I should say the Honorable Franklin Garcia, who's going to be running for a third term, correct? That's right. That's right. I just uh, picked up petition uh, last Friday. Uh, so I'm now in the midst of collecting over 3,000 signatures is the minimum that I usually uh, submit to be eligible just to be show up on the ballot. So I'm excited Great. about that. Great. So tell us a little about yourself and why you decided to go into public service. Yeah, and so I arrived in Washington, D.C. back in 1980, uh, and I uh, grew up in D.C., went to school here, uh, gra graduate of American University in George Washington, uh, and uh, at an early age, I decided to become an activist because in many ways I felt like um, by becoming engaged in your community, it was the only way in which you can truly contribute. Mm -hmm. And then I felt that uh, there was also a need for the contributions I had. I was very good always in technology, and so I felt that whenever I joined a group, I always became an integral part 
of making that group grow because of my skills. And it just grew from there. And then um, shortly, um, I first started um, helping the Latino community in DC. Uh, it then broadened to the immigrant community in DC. Mm-hmm. And then uh, subsequently, I just uh, naturally uh, <clears throat> became involved in democratic uh, politics in, in Washington, became the director of communications for our local party, uh, and uh, worked on establishing the, the DC Latino Caucus, which was instrumental in getting a number of Latinos electing, elected into the Democratic Party, our central committee, the D- DC Democratic State Committee is the official name. Uh, and um, I was always pushing for Latinos to get into more elected office. And so naturally, um, being the head of the Latino Caucus at that time, I decided to run for public office, and that's how I got elected. Amazing. Can you explain what a shadow representative is? Absolutely. So shadow members of Congress are not unique to the District of Columbia. This is not an invention of Washington, D.C. The first shadow members of Congress, in fact, were elected back in 1796 from what is today known as the Tennessee, uh, the state of Tennessee. Uh, And the idea behind shadow members of Congress was that you would have a conduit, a vehicle to deliver the message that there was a discontent within the territories uh, for this status quo, which basically uh, made a lot of those uh, citizens or people that resided in those territories, second-class people or citizens, not even citizens back then. And so uh, the idea to elect uh, and at the beginning to appoint uh, uh, shadow members was that they would go to the U.S. Congress and physically deliver the message from those people that they wanted to become a state. And in fact, uh, one of the senators actually went to uh, the U.S. Congress and physically went inside of the door, showed up, and they didn't know what to do with him. And they basically found a a chair and and physically sat him on the floor of the Senate. And they, uh, the history says that uh, it, uh, it was only until the whole, the whole situation was resolved and Tennessee became a state that they actually uh, were able to move on and get uh, them out. But uh, that was the idea, symbolically, mm-hmm. to go to the U.S. Congress and advocate for statehood, the admission of those territories into a state. You are not afforded an actual office in the Congress. You actually get to, you're housed here in what is basically D.C. City Hall, Wilson Building, correct? That's right, that's right. And so we have in the District of Columbia a officially recognized representative in the U.S. Congress, and that is our delegate seat. And that's now occupied by Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. She actually has a seat in the U.S. Congress, a, 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 an office in the U.S. Congress, including a salary uh, also. Uh, and so what we have in as members of the shadow delegation, uh, which is actually an improvement from the earlier years of people who held uh, my office, is an office in the local city government. And we also get a budget uh, to fund uh, the office from our local city government also. Great. Um, what are some of the major disadvantages of not being a state, not being recognized? Uh, we all pay taxes here in the Washington, D.C. area, but we actually don't have a voice in Congress, and the only voice that we have is that delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who um, is not being allowed to uh, have a full vote by the current Congress leadership, which are the GOP. Um, 
What other major disadvantages does this district have? That's right. And so when we talk about not being a state or not having statehood, most people think of uh, the disadvantage of not having representation in Congress, right? Uh, you don't have, uh, like other jurisdictions, other states, uh, two senators and whatever allocated number of representatives. In our case, it would be one. We don't have those, right? We don't have any senators voting senators, and we, we only have shadow senators, and we don't have a voting uh, delegate. We also know that uh, our laws are a big problem. Our local laws, any laws that are enacted by our local legislators, have to go through a 30 days review process. Uh, and the Congress at any time can actually uh, object to those laws. And in fact, it's happened a few times. If we remember back in the 90s, at the height of the AIDS epidemic, uh, Washington, D.C. implemented uh, or put in place a needle exchange program because they thought, knowing their local community that it was uh, it would help uh, curb or, or, or bring down the AIDS uh, infection rate uh, and in fact uh, they put a law in place and it was actually uh, not allowed to go into place uh, by the US Congress and it was abandoned it was ter terminated and it took a decade later for us to actually bring it back and we realized that we could have saved so many lives, uh, so many people from getting infected if we had continued that program. And so it's happened like that. Yeah, most, re most recently we had the, the passage of black, uh, marijuana laws allowing us to, our residents, to be able to use marijuana. And Congress was ready to arrest Mayor Bowser for if this it was enacted, this law that was put into the books by popular vote. So they get to have a say on all our laws and budget. And, and that's right. The law you're uh, talking about, the uh, <clears throat> remember, we started back in the 90s, and we actually approved medical, the usage of medical marijuana back in the 90s, and Congress stepped in and said, no, you can't do it. It took, again, a decade later, for us to actually throw it back at, at our citizens, and then and then at that point, me medical marijuana was accepted. And then later on, then we also, I think we're only the third jurisdiction in the nation that allows for recreation of marijuana, which is what you're talking about. And it's been uh, challenged a number of times from different members of Congress. Uh, uh, and, and even today, we're not clear because uh, we can, we, we have recreation of marijuana, but we're not able to really legislate it, legislate it or regulate it. Uh, there are a lot of people that want to get into the business of uh, you know, marketing and selling uh, marijuana products, and that's we, we can't do that right now. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but that's another example where all of our laws, every single one of our laws, has to go through this revision process. And whenever Congress wants, if they have the uh, majority of them uh, not supporting a particular law, they can actually, as in the case of uh, both houses being a member of the Republican Party, which is really not friendly to, towards DC autonomy, uh, they can actually uh, stop any law from being implemented in the District of Columbia. And they normally do it. They have all kinds of ways to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them are tied to, you can't spend money on it if you are going to do it. And, and there are all kinds of restrictions how they, they, they manage to do it. Uh, but also uh, another uh, disadvantage not being in state, which is it gets very great, but it's really our judiciary system, which really we don't have any. Uh, aside from uh, administrative courts, 
you know, where you, if you get a ticket, you can go and, and adjudicate that. Uh, we don't really have. Our entire judiciary system is through the federal web. And so that means that if somebody, one of our citizens, becomes involved in, in, in a situation where they have to be incarcerated, uh, they could end up in Texas serving their term. Uh, whereas if you were in the state of uh, Massachusetts, it would all be controlled locally. Here, automatically, we become part of this federal web. And it's very, very uh, unfair to our citizens. Uh, I know that when you're talking about uh, you know, people who engage in criminal activities, people normally are not as, as uh, uh, you know, sympathetic towards them. But it's still a disadvantage of big proportions to our citizens and the families that are bearing the burden to have to see a loved one perhaps, you know, out of the area and they, they can't see it. And so um, there are many reasons why we need to pursue statehood from uh, being able to allocate and uh, bring monies uh, whenever we have any situation. Uh, our representatives... Uh, Currently, we, we pay more into taxes than we get back, correct? Yeah, and so D.C., it's known at over $26 billion to contribute more uh, monies than over 12 other states. It also per capita is uh, known to be the most, the highest taxes paid in the entire nation of any states. So we definitely need to correct that because it is true that we pay in the District of Columbia. The numbers I'm citing there, $26 billion, was back from a couple of years ago. So I'm sure that it's grown now in the last two years. But we contribute more per capita than anywhere in the U.S. of A. And that's been demonstrated over and over. Yeah. In the last... Uh presidential election. We had a very important presidential election in 2016, but there was also an, uh, a ballot, a measure in the D.C. election um, where people got to choose if they wanted to become a statehood. 78% voted yes. What are the steps on to become, what are the avenues to get us to statehood? Because I understand there's several ways. That's right. And so what we are following is a plan uh, called Tennessee, the Tennessee plan. And I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. that uh, uh, Tennessee uh, was the first elected, its first shadow members of Congress. And so what we're doing is we're, we're following the Tennessee plan. Now, the Tennessee plan has steps. And what it says is that it, it's kind of like saying, Normally, traditionally, state territories are admitted by act of Congress. Congress admits territories and it tells them, you know, we're going to go ahead and give you admission as a state. The Tennessee plan is a proactive plan that says we're going to declare ourselves a state by doing A, B, C, D. We're going to draft a state constitution. We're going to host a referendum asking our population if they want to become a state. We're going to uh, do this thing that uh, says that we are a representative democracy, and we're going to delineate, we're going to define our boundaries of the state. Once we do all those things, we're going to call ourselves a state, and we're going to demand that the Congress admits us as a state. That's the process for the Tennessee plan. We have completed 
all those steps in the District of Columbia. The last one was over uh, the summer. Last, I want to say last summer, but it's already been <laughs> over a year. Uh, so not the summer of 2016. Uh, 2017, but the summer of 2016, we actually uh, put out a referendum and we asked the citizens if they wanted the District of Columbia to become a state. And depending on how you look the numbers, uh, up to somewhere around 85% of our voting population said, yes, we want to become a state. And so now the step that we need to follow is we need to go and to meet legisla legislatures in both houses, which we now have. Mm -hmm. We have HR uh, 1291 in the House of Representatives that currently has uh, 142 co-sponsors, all Democrats, unfortunately, and we have an equivalent bill in the House in the Senate that has about 20 has 20, not about has 20 co-sponsors. Mm -hmm. If we're able to pass both of those bills in Congress, then it moves on to the to the president to the executive branch, and and if the president signs it, then that gives the admission of the District of Columbia as the 51st state. That's the passage that we have. And so where we're stuck right now is in getting enough uh, uh, co-sponsors in both the House and the Senate so that it could actually hit the floor and get a vote. We have, the last time we had a vote on not on statehood, it was on the Voting Rights Act of 1978. Uh, it was, uh, it actually passed both houses and the uh, intent then was to grant the District of Columbia two senators, voting senators, and a House member, a voting House member. And for that, the path we chose was to amend the United States Constitution. Through that constitutional amendment, it would have given the District of Columbia, not statehood, but for voting rights in Congress. Now, a constitutional amendment, as you know, we've only had 27 of them, are very cumbersome, very complicated. It requires that within seven years, you have full majority passage in both houses and three-fourths, supermajority, of all the states ratifying it. Mm -hmm. Now, D.C., by the time it started in 78, when it expired seven years later in 85, we had only garnered about 18 states. I think it was exactly 18 states. So we were short of the 35 that we needed, uh, the three-fourths to be able to get that constitution amendment through. If we ever try, we would have to ask those states all over again if we were to go that route through constitutional amendment? amendment? That, that's right, that's why. If we were to try to amend the constitution again to grant the District of Columbia statehood, we would start from zero. Now, we're not following that path because we believe, and scholars are very much in agreement for the most part, that to admit the District of Columbia as a, as a state, you don't need to amend the Constitution. Again, the Constitution uh, is a very cumbersome process to amend it, and so we don't believe that we need to do that. What we believe is that it's within the Constitution. When I visit members of Congress, primarily Republican members, a one of the objections that they have for signing or being co-sponsors of our bill is that they believe that the only way the District of Columbia can become a state is by means of amending the U.S. Constitution. They don't think that you can amend the Constitution, you can admit the District of Columbia as a, as a state without amending the Constitution because they cite Article 1, Section 8 that speaks 
exclusively, specifically about a federal district, what they call a federal enclave, separate from the states. And they say that for you to change the designation of this landmass that you now call Washington, D.C., to a state, you would actually have to amend the Constitution. Now, we say that our counter-argument is that we have already gone through this process in the past. If you remember, the Organic Act of 1801 that officially took over the, 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 the national capital by the U.S. Congress uh, was uh, taken over by a territory that was, a lot, that was larger than what it is today. Uh, originally, the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., was made up of land donated or ceded from the states of Maryland and Virginia. Uh, Virginia donated 31 uh, miles, square miles, and uh, Maryland did uh, the 38 point something that, that we have that we're sitting on. Well, Virginia, in 1846, took their portions back. And so we are sitting only on territory donated by the state of Maryland. And we did not amend the Constitution to shrink the size of the national capital because the Constitution talks about an upper limit. It doesn't say that the capital can't be reduced. It talks about it can't be greater than 10 square mile, 10 miles square. And so um, what we're doing is we're saying we have already reduce the size of our national capital once without amending the Constitution. Well, let's do it again. And this time, let's do it not for economic uh, conditions or situations as it was done back in the 1840s. Let's do it now to grant for statehood, for, for citizenship uh, rights to all the citizens that reside here. 700,000, more than two states. And competing with a bunch of others, there's about eight states that have population around a million or less. You know, the Dakotas, Delaware, there's all these places, you know, so we're not, and we wouldn't be unique with our size and with our population size. And so what we're saying is, let's reduce the federal district. Let's maintain our national capital, be Washington, D.C. And let us now look at the residential parts in all the other part, all the other places and call that the state of Washington, D.C. or the 51st state. Awesome. So you're basically having to go to all these legis- uh, congressmen and give them a history lesson. <laughs> Does it ever get tiresome having to go through the same speech with probably every two years you have probably have new people that you have to educate? Or is this something that you're passionate about that you just don't mind having to educate more and more folks? But, you know, I also uh, it's not always the same. I get all kinds of things. For example, uh you know, uh, one, something else that they tell me is that for D.C. to make use of what was originally intended for a specific purpose, i.e. our national capital, for D.C. now to change its usage to a state, you should really go back to the state of Maryland and, and ask for their permission. That, that was a, a, a member of Congress that recently told me that. Of course, we have, a, you know, what we say to that is, well, look, the permission uh, in many ways has been granted by having almost their entire congressional delegation or on statehood bill. Maryland has eight congressional districts. Six of the eight are co-sponsors. Both of their senators are co-sponsors of our bill. So in many ways, we think that that's granting us permission if their members of Congress are saying are, are on our uh, statehood bill. I had uh, not all Democrats 
support statehood for the District of Columbia. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned that every one of our co-sponsors on, on both bills are currently Democrats, but not all Democrats support statehood. Um, I had a visit recently with a member from the state of California, uh, Gary Mandi is his name, Congressman, I think I'm pronouncing his name correct, uh, Congressman Gary Mundy, Gary Mundy. Uh, and, and what he told me is, he is a very progressive Democrat. And so, but what he's, his objection to signing on to the, to, the, to the bill is that he can't concede, he can't conceive this idea that Washington, D.C. having 700,000 people would have the same power, legislative power in the Senate with two senators as the state of California with 30 some million people. And so he, he has a hard time, he tells me, uh, signing on to a bill that would give so little people so much power in comparison to the state that he comes from. He says that let's work on whatever we need to do to make the citizens of Washington full citizens without making the District of Columbia a state. And look, what I told him is that, and I mentioned to him that, you know, there are a number of other states whose population- Wyoming. Yeah, Wyoming, Vermont. I mentioned that, you know, I went through my whole speech. And, and, and you know, but then um, it, it's, 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 um, it's, you know, you get all kinds of, all kinds of uh, 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 things thrown at you. Now, if people want to get involved in this cause that uh, for statehood, what avenues? Are there meetups? Are there, is there an organization that they can go to? Is there a website they could sign up? Absolutely. Uh, currently, one of the good things about our movement right now is that it's very, very solid. That is, unlike in the past where people were constantly talking about, let's get the vote in Congress. Let's get our delegate the vote. Right now, we're talking about statehood, which is a lot more than just the vote for the delegate. Uh, and to that end, we have at least, I would say, 12 to 13 solid groups in our city that are working, whether they're community groups, uh, they're governmental groups, you name it, think tanks that are all working for statehood. So some of the more prominent ones are like DC Vote. All they do, even though it's called DC Vote, they're actually statehood big statehood advocates. Neighbors United for DC Statehood, Free DC, DC for Democracy, DC Latino Leadership Council. All these organizations are all working. So if you uh, have a like for working with the LGBT community, if you have a like for working with the immigrant community, with the Latinos, with the African Americans, with the women's group, you can find a group in the city that is working for statehood right now. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Now, is there an actual uh, website that you have that has more information? Absolutely, yes, yes. I always uh, cite our official government website, mm -hmm. dc.gov. If you go to dc.gov, there are all kinds of services out there that you can look into, including a section dedicated to statehood. So dc.gov slash statehood is the direct link. But if you go to dc.gov, which is easy to remember, and you type in there somewhere, statehood, it'll take you to that link. But for us, we have our own website, and that is 
DC51.US, DC51.US, that's the Congressional Statehood Delegation website, DC51.US. Thank you so much, Franklin, for giving us, uh, uh, Representative Franklin uh, Garcia, for um, sharing all this information about statehood, about your position, and your public service. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Always glad to talk statehood. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, Jesse.